You are listening to a Bible Talk recorded at the 2018 Western Christadelphian Bible School at Manuka. This is the second class in a series given by Brother Matthew Blewett on the subject, Meditations in Revelation. This class is titled, Applying the Approach. Welcome back to the graveyard session. I hope you are... Uh... Sustained with some caffeine or uh, some tea or whatever it is that you need to keep you going just a few more minutes and then you've got the whole afternoon, as you say, to uh, enjoy your... Sustained by the excitement of our subject. What an encouraging word from my brother John. Um, so we're going to continue, just to remind you a little bit about the meditation approach that, that I was suggesting. We're going to spend a bit of time today just looking at some of the, the techniques which... I guess many of you are familiar with uh, that I've tried to employ uh, in my meditations and when they become a bit more from a study point of view, the approach that I think is supported in Scripture. And then we're going to go and apply it and, and, and give you some examples of, of some of the uh, applying the approach in some of the meditations that I've had been able to enjoy. So I'm just going to run very quickly th- some of these slides we've seen already. So um, I will just run through them. Those are the five steps that we were going through yesterday. Focus, uh, and then this idea of looking at the overall passage first, and then, of course, uh, remembering, uh, thinking about echoes, and we'll look at some of that in a bit more detail, bringing us to worship, and then obviously looking at ways in which we can apply what we've learned, and gaining from it this spiritual truth, the principles that the Lord Jesus Christ is intending to share with us in this amazing love letter. So... Um, in this meditation approach, as I've already suggested, what I found really important is this idea of taking our time. Uh, and um, there was already allusions to the fact that we live in a world that's uh, full of uh, 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 lots of things, but there's not enough depth happening. And I think when we give ourselves time, uh, that is very important. And so one of the key principles that I found is taking a little bit less and really giving it a, a whole bunch of time. I've already spoken about when, when, when I think about a passage in the book of Revelation, uh, my intent is not to, and I've been told, say, not tick the boxes, but check the boxes. So that's what I mean by that. Don't just be trying to check the boxes, trying to work out what every symbol w- uh, represents. Uh, sometimes we get more caught up in that than getting to understand the why and the real application and the principle behind the passage. Um, I'm sorry, yes, my template changed to red on black, and I've already worked out that that is not good, so I'm going to go back to white on black, but we'll have to, hopefully with the lights dim, you can see some of the writing. Um, in doing that, obviously this principle that, that I've emphasized and will continue to emphasize is the strong principle that when we're trying to, to understand these symbols, the best place to go is spiritual with spiritual. You know, the idea of symbols and images, I've already said, is exciting. It allows us to look at these these messages from a number of angles, this multidimensional approach. And the risk of it, obviously, is, is also that because we're reading about symbols and images, we can bring a lot of our own understanding in. And no doubt when the Bible or Revelation uses a symbol like lamb, it wants us to think about the natural qualities of a lamb, uh, that it's off, obviously often a gentle creature, that it follows uh, the shepherd and it follows the sheep. Yes, those issues, those thoughts should come in, but a lot of what I believe we're taught to think about is what and how those symbols, those images, those ideas, those words have been used 
in remembering the rest of Scripture. And we'll see in some of the techniques that I think um, Paul and the Lord Jesus Christ, who really are, are, are the great students for us of the Old Testament, actually use these techniques and, and show us how to actually unravel uh, the meaning of, of, of things that we find in the Word of God. So this is, is, to me, one of the key passages to do that, that explains how we do that. And then at the center of any meditation, of any Bible study, of any passage that we get into in some detail must always be why. Why is this passage of any importance? You know, I think as we get older, we lose the why question. Uh, my kids uh, were really good when they were young at asking why. Eventually, we got crazy with Adam, our oldest, or sec- oh, second kid. He asked why so many times. We gave him three for the day, and uh, then he couldn't ask anymore. Uh, and uh, you, you, you might be less gracious or more gracious as parents. But the reality is what we're doing is we, 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 we're squeezing the whys out of them. But obviously, that's the most important question. When we get older, we stop asking why, because maybe we think we've worked out everything. But every, every passage of Revelation, every passage of Scripture is really trying to bring us to the why. Why is it recorded for us? Why do we have the book of Hosea? You know, what is the why? Uh, and that's what I, I want us to keep coming back to. And then, uh, for those of you who heard me before, you know, I, I think I plagiarized, well, it's not a, a, a plagiarism when you take something from somebody else, but I remember uh, Peter King, I'm sure some of you may have heard of Peter King, um, he always said that if you do any Bible study or any Bible talk and it doesn't eventually bring you to the feet of Jesus, you perhaps haven't used your time effectively. And so, in almost any meditation, my expectation is that it's going to bring me back to Jesus. And the book of Revelation, as we said in the beginning, in chapter 1, verse 1, says this is the revelation from Jesus Christ. And that, that genitive uh, uh, use of the Greek also can mean of Jesus Christ. So he is both the messenger who's giving us the message, but it's also all about him. It begins with him. Right at the beginning, he's walking amongst the lampstands. He's the consistent symbol of the lamb and many other images of him throughout the book. And he's there at the end. And the last statement, even so, or second to last statement, even so, come Lord Jesus. So he, he is the central figure. We should expect to see him in, in everything that we meditate on. And, and, and I hope to be able to show that as well. So what are some of the techniques that, 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 that I think are, are, are really important? And one of the ones that has been, I guess, uh, uh, hugely impactful for me, and this is why I keep referring to this as a meditation approach, is the idea of when you read a few verses of Revelation, focusing on seeing the picture that has been described. A large part of what uh, John is recording for us in the book of Revelation is visual. So he saw something, he was caught up into the spirit, he sees a picture, sometimes he does hear words, he records those words, and then he takes the visual and puts it back into words because he has to communicate. He didn't have a video at the time, so he couldn't capture it on video. So he, he captures those words and then he presents it back to us. Often what we do is we just stay back at the words zone. We read the words and then we attempt to study it. Instead of trying to convert those words in our mind back into a picture. Now that might sound, uh, well, that, you know, but it's, it's, it's very important because once we do that, we begin to see and notice things that we may not have seen just by reading. And I'm going to give you two little techniques to do that. And um, I think this is really important. I'm also taught, I'm not a psychiatrist, and I'm sure we have people that are more into studying the way in which the brain works, that when we, for example, are reading, and we're going through the process of encoding letters into words, there's a certain part of our brain that's activated, and we, we enter into a certain way of thinking. 
which is quite different to the way of thinking we may have when we see a picture. So, so there's a different mindset that we approach something when we see it in picture form. And it's also so important for me, this idea of trying to see the, the passages of Revelation, that I highly encourage you, if you have not already done this, because then you already are corrupted, not to go on the internet and find other people's pictures of the passages of Revelation, because they'll corrupt you. Give yourself the opportunity to build the picture first in your own mind. That's the beauty. When we read something and we create the picture ourselves, that our pictures will look different. And why is that? Because we'll notice different things. And in that is something special for you. So um, uh, if you've already done it, maybe you've forgotten and you can recreate these pictures in your mind. Um, and the important principle here is what I call the principle of taking the words off the page. And hence, my, the, the thing that has worked really well for me is to try to limit the passage I'm meditating on to one or two or at best, maybe three verses. Now, this isn't always easy because sometimes the picture that's being described, even if we want to take the smallest part of it, is a bit more than that. But the point is, if you're like me, and at some point I want to read what's being said, and then I want to put it away so that I'm not in the reading mode, I'm in the thinking, imagining mode. Well, if it's too many verses, um, you, you're going to fall, uh, you, you're not going to be able to do that. So some of you may have really good memories. You can read 10 verses, put it away and remember it. Uh, then that's great. But the idea of taking a small passage helps us to take it off the page. The beauty of taking scripture off the page means you can meditate when you're driving. All right, because it's impossible as far as I've found to meditate when you're driving if you're reading. Those two things don't go well together. So this is going to elongate your time of meditating, taking it off the page. And when I mean taking off the page, it doesn't mean you're trying to learn a verse off by heart. You read a passage three times, what's going to happen is certain words are going to stick or certain ideas or hopefully even pictures in your mind so that you can take it off the page and further work with it. So that's a key principle. Uh, one way of doing this as well, we're all different, is maybe choosing actually not just to imagine the vision, but to draw it, to take the opportunity to say, let me draw what I think I've read. And again, I, I encourage people, if you're going to draw a vision, not to do it analytically. Okay, it says that there are four creatures. Let me draw the four creatures. Oh, it says this, and then go back in that analytical mode. Read it. Read it two or three times. If you're very slow, read it ten times. Move it away, and then from what you've remembered, try and recreate that picture. Uh, we'll, we'll do a little exercise in that, and you'll see how amazing it is. When you start to draw something that you've heard as a picture, you'll notice that certain detail isn't there. You can't actually draw it. You say, well, it didn't say whether it was round or square. Or it doesn't tell me who's actually on the throne. Is it a man, a lamb? It says someone. So, so you, you begin to notice what's missing. And, and that's a very important technique for focus and meditation, uh, as I'm presenting it. Um, very important for me, as I've already mentioned, is this idea of echoes. We, we're, we're trying to pick up uh, on ideas, themes, symbols, and, and, and then to unlock them or potentially gain more from them from what the rest of the Bible says. Uh, I'm passionate. Um, I said, uh, I heard, I remember Cameron saying in his first talk, uh, I'm going back to Genesis 1 and I do that every time. Well, that's a good practice um, because to me, uh, there's a great, uh, especially with Revelation, we mentioned this in the first talk, there's this, this beautiful, uh, sometimes parallel, sometimes contradiction between the first and the last, Genesis and Revelation. And so so many of the themes of Revelation are, are gened, as it were, have their DNA in the book of Genesis. So it's always exciting to go back to, to, to chasing up an idea or a picture to the book of Genesis because they're often the beginning, the seed 
of that picture is in Genesis, and we see it growing and reaching its climax in Revelation. And sometimes what we see is an amplification of Revelation. Sometimes we're having a discussion uh, yesterday. We actually see a paradox that in Revelation, the, the DNA and what we saw in Genesis has been completely changed around in the book of Revelation. And that, that's, that's a great way of unlocking more from, from the symbol. Um, looking for themes is, is, is an obvious thing as one meditates more and more on the book of Revelation. Certain themes become apparent. Uh, one of the key themes you'll hear me talking about over and over again that has become so obvious to me is the continuous allusion to power. I mean, the book of Revelation starts with this, 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 this blessing of power that's been given to the Lamb and to God. And, and the whole way through, there's this struggle for power as man tries to exert power and strength and then how God brings that power back. So, so we look out for these themes and these, these repetitions that we expect to see. Um, and then meanings and patterns. Again, this is a, a Bible technique we, we, we make a lot of use of. We, we try and pick up patterns. We try and see, is there anything in the meaning of a word? And again, a lot of these, these techniques uh, that help us to, to gain more from the message or to, to reveal the spiritual truth are, as I mentioned earlier, really techniques that we've learned from Jesus and from Paul. I mean, for example, uh, people sometimes say to me, you know, we as Bible students, we, we keep going back to the meaning of a word, and, and, and sometimes we overdo that. But if you just look at Paul in Hebrews 7, he, he uses this technique, for example, when he mentions Melchizedek. He says we've got a, a king called Melchizedek, and he begins to unpack what Melchizedek might mean today when he says, well, his name means king of righteousness. So he actually he shows us this technique. He takes the meaning of the name, and he was the king of Salem. And Salem means peace. So we get from Melchizedek that he was first the king of righteousness, and then he was the king of peace. And that idea of righteousness comes before peace. So, so there's a technique being taught to us by Paul of, of, of meanings. I mean, as far as patterns is concerned, the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's not always obvious, is incredible at teaching us to look at occurrences of words. People often say, you know, you keep talking about the number of times this word appears and, and, and that it's so dominant in the book of Revelation. I'll give you one example for you to chase up. Jesus says, um, consider the lilies. All right. And I can tell you that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed as one of these. Go and chase up the word lily and the pattern of the use of that word in the Old Testament. You will find in almost every occasion that it's used, Solomon is the one who uses it. So he's made use of patterns. He's looked at who was, who, who saw a lily as something that was glorious to, and mentioned it all the time, Solomon. So he doesn't just pick up the lily randomly. He sees the pattern and makes use of it. So again, a, a Bible technique taught to us by, by the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, looking specifically for colors. The book of Revelation is such a colorful book, so we notice the colors. Um, and notice the numbers. We're going to talk about how the book talks to us in different languages. Um, and then I want to just end on these two. What looks strange and what is missing? And again, uh, I think this, this technique is, is taught to us by both Paul and the Lord Jesus Christ. That when we focus on a scripture, we expect often, because there's a spiritual truth here, that there's something here that doesn't fit naturally. You know, we, we've got to be very aware when we're reading from the book of the Spirit, that many of the things that the natural mind expects to see and find shouldn't actually be there. There should be things that don't make sense because we're being trained to think differently. Remember what it says in Isaiah, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are higher as the heavens are from the earth to your thoughts. 
I have a different way of comprehending things. So when we consider a passage, we should be looking for, for what's missing. What did I expect to find here and it's not here? Again, use the example of Hebrews 7, Paul. He says of Melchizedek, he said, who has no descent, who has no father or mother. Now, we think, well, hang on a moment. Surely Melchizedek had a father or a mother and had some descent. But what he's saying is go back to the record in Genesis. Use the Genesis gene practice. Go back to the record in Genesis. Look at how the Bible reveals Melchizedek. This incredibly important man who blesses Abraham appears out of nowhere. He has no father. He has no mother. He has no son. He's saying, surely you noticed that was missing. And why? Well, you've got to go to Hebrews 7 and you'll find out. So, so he's using that, that missing. What's missing from the passage? You know, Jesus does it also. Um, uh, he's phenomenal. And they often marveled at his technique uh, when they were arguing about the resurrection. He said to them, well, he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. What, what was that all about? He was saying, didn't you realize how when God, the only time, it's interesting, if you go and have a look at the phrase, God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you might think that that phrase is used throughout the Old Testament as one of the, the labels of God. It isn't. It actually only appears four times around the time of the burning of the bush and the revelation of the eternal name, Yahweh. He who was, he who is, and he was to come. It represented the fact that God was ever living. And in that revelation of his name, God says, here's my name, Yahweh, and we will call me the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, what Jesus is saying is, what a strange association to make. That God, in declaring himself to be living, says he's the God of three people that are dead. That doesn't make sense. Of course it doesn't. Unless you enter into the spiritual mindset that says, they're not dead. They will be raised again. So, so these, these biblical study techniques, meditation techniques, they're being taught to us by the two greatest students we could ever ask to learn from, the Lord Jesus Christ and Paul and others, who show us how we can take parts of Revelation and indeed parts of any part of Scripture and apply these kind of techniques. But it takes time. It, it requires us to think deeply. So we're going to be doing some of these things. We're going to be saying, what looks strange? What's missing? And hopefully from that, maybe uh, learn a few things. So these little icons here, uh, developed by the graphic designer, Matthew Blewett, um, they will appear every now and again to show you that we're using this technique, maybe just to, 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 to demonstrate it. And I'm sure in your own Bible study you have, but for those who perhaps haven't thought about it more formally, um, here's a way of thinking about it. So let us start getting into some practice, because that's the best way to learn. Now, if you haven't worked out by now, I have a computer IT background. So I do think a bit like a computer every now and again. And uh, at the very basic level of IT, the way that we've improved your life so massively is actually very simple. We just understood binary code. We understood that in life, everything is either on or off. So right now, some of you are off and some of you are on. Okay? I'm hoping more ones and zeros than zeros in this room. And we represent that as a one and a zero. And it's the simplest piece of information that in, in, in the IT or computer world that we can represent. And we can either represent it by a, 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 a particular piece of an electronic circuit being on or off. We can actually use magnetism to do that, and we, we can use light to do that. Light is on, off. Uh, that's why we've got optical uh, communication methods. I'll stop there. All right, leave the IT story, but you get that. Just bits. And then 
often to sort of like uh, 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 represent something a bit more meaningful, like a letter, we take uh, a number of bits, eight bits, and we call them a byte. So if you, if you don't remember anything else, at least you've got a computer lesson, all right? Now, the only reason I'm telling you all of that, there is no scriptural background, there's, there's no bits and bytes in the scripture. It's just that when I was doing my meditations, I became very aware that sometimes I would meditate on a passage and there would be a single idea. I call that a bit. A beautiful spiritual truth that I would take for the day. Maybe I would pause on for two or three days. But every now and again, and more, 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 more now than again, I would discover a bit that needed to be chewed on a bit. You know, you, you understand about chewing the cud? Like the, the, the cattle teach us when they really get a good piece of grass. They, they taste it and say, wow, this, this grass is really good. What they do is they go to bed and then they wake up in the morning and they think, wow, I remember that piece of grass that I ate. And they bring it back up again. I mean, sometimes I wish I could do that. You go to a great restaurant, have a good meal, the next day bring it back up and enjoy it again. Um, I won't carry on with that analogy. So the idea is that you can chew the cud. And of course, what's so amazing about the Word of God is when we chew the cud and we, and we get into a bit more of the detail, we pull more of the string, even more spiritual truths come out, and our mind begins to wonder and think about it over the day and over the week. So every now and again, I have a bite. So what we're going to be sharing with you through the rest of our time together are some bits, some meditations that are, are I think, quite specific, uh, singular in the, in the message, and some that will take me about uh, half an hour to tell you about, just, and I'm so excited to share it, so I've just got to let you chew the cud with me. So that's a bit and a bite. So I talk about Revelation bits and Revelation bites, and I have no Bible reference to show you to do that. But anyway... Let us now give two illustrations of bits, just uh, uh, putting into practice the, 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 the approach that I'm suggesting. So I'm going to start with a seeing bit, and on the screen, yeah. So here we have a passage from Revelation chapter 19. So we jump into Revelation 19, and let's read it together. So if I was doing my meditation approach, this is the passage that's come up. We read it. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Now, if I click forward, just, just illustrating the point. Ooh, not that forward. If I go back like that. There are a few more verses that carry on with this vision. That's not the end of that vision. In verse 14, it says, And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now, what I've purposefully done here is I have decided to stop there because there is a break in the vision. The next part of the vision is going to focus on those who are around the one on the white horse. So again, the only reason I've done that is because I'm a pretty simple guy. If I've got to try and imagine all of that, my mind not, may not be able to focus. I'm quite comfortable with doing that because the way I do my meditation is in two or three days' time, I will move on to the next part of the vision and maybe focus on that. And there may be some context that's relevant from the previous part. So, so you know, we always say try and keep everything in context. Well, that's maybe an exception. So we're focusing just on that first part. I'm going to read it again. And I'm warning you now. So after we've done that, then I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to see the picture. You can do it while I'm reading it again. But let's read it again. I, I normally take three reads. Some might take less. 
Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and him who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. So you're going to be thankful. I'm going to shut up for the next minute and ask you just to imagine and visualize that little picture. At this point, anybody listening to the recording is just checking that it's still working. But we are still, yeah, how many thought a minute was quite a long time. And you didn't need a minute to think about that. Put your hands up if you want to say that. Eh? You, were, you were done in 10, 15 seconds. So, so the point is, if that's true, it's a practice. It's a practice of saying, it just took me 10 seconds to imagine it. But now I've got to get on top of this man with it. What do I see? Do I see anything different when I zoom up and look at him from above? Is there anything different from that perspective? And then I look at him from the front. Do I notice anything? Am I noticing anything different? So there's lots to notice, isn't there, in that? There's lots to, to, to get our attention. This picture of this incredible man, and he's riding this white horse, and the white is perhaps starting to get our mind racing. And he's got these fiery eyes. And, he, and he's got the Word of God written on him. And, of course, our minds, perhaps before we can even stop them, because we're trying to imagine it more, we may be even getting echoes back to John 1. And, and we're still trying to imagine the picture and as we're imagining it, there's so many things that could get our attention. And that's why there's so much in here. Now, for me, what was it? And I'm taking you through my, 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 my process. What was it about that picture that maybe grabbed my attention that seemed peculiar using that particular uh, technique? Uh, and, and we're going to be sharing that together. So for me, as, I, as I've just taken you through, it's a process of focus. Getting yourself into a quiet place so that you can externally focus doesn't help if you're in a very noisy place. It's hard to see the vision. Uh, we spoke about internal focus, clearing your mind, meditation practices, perhaps before even doing the imagination and reading the scripture. Spend two, three, five, t- however long you've got breathing techniques. Clear your mind. Get yourself ready to truly be able to focus. Another little practice that I find very useful when you've got a shorter passage of scripture, sometimes try and read it in reverse. Now, I know that that's, uh, uh, to do that audibly is very difficult, but it's not difficult to do that when you just look at a passage. Read the passage and the ideas backwards, because our brains have ability when we're looking at passages we've seen many times before to miss, to see the same detail every time. So a, a practice, read it in reverse. Um, and then, of course, in this focus tech method that I was thinking of, going beyond just seeing the picture, but looking for that which is missing or that which looks like the red ball, something that's different. And so if we take this passage, uh, did your picture look like that? Anybody have a picture like that? Not at all. So imagine if you had seen that before, then you would have been maybe made to have a look at that picture. 
So that's a part of this, this technique, a part of this approach. But I have used that picture for a reason, because when I spent time focusing on this image, one thing suddenly jumped out at me. Here we have this, this amazing uh, a, a person coming who's going to, to reign in faithfulness and bring justice. And of course, we've got the pictures of the Lord Jesus Christ already in our mind. And it says that he's wearing many crowns. And I wasn't as good as this artist. I was wondering how he was going to balance all those crowns on his head. I don't know if some of you had that kind of thought. You know, kind of, I didn't think he would pack them like that. He had one here and one there, and it's just quite awkward. And I, I was looking at uh, uh, some video footage. You know, when the Queen of England makes her a rare appearance, uh, uh, often not looking too happy, even for a poor son, a grandson's wedding. But anyway, besides that, she arrives and she's just got one crown. I mean, you don't need more than one crown to show you a queen or a king. But here is this, this many crowns. And of course, the, the, the person that drew this picture has tried to illustrate that. He's got them stacked up on his head. And so suddenly my attention is drawn to why many crowns? Why does he have to come with many crowns? And what does that teach me? And is there something I can take with me uh, for the day and for the rest of my life? So let's, let's follow that through. First of all, as I said, I do like to start by just saying, what, is, what am I getting out of this passage? Before I, I move into the detail of something I've, I've noticed, and, and I think we would all agree when we stay at the forest level, this is a beautiful passage. And if I get nothing more out of it, it's, it's confidence that although we live in a world where sometimes we can feel like there's no justice, that will there ever come a day where there is going to be this, well, to be colloquial, this knight in shining armor on a white horse will come and rule in righteousness and bring justice. And, and there's the inspiration before we even go any further. And the book of Revelation is full of that inspiration so that when I go out for my day and suddenly at work I'm, I'm, I'm confronted with, with power that I understand is not good and not by the principles that I want to live by, I'm encouraged that, that my judge is coming. And when he comes, he will vanquish all that are before him. So there's the, the, the forest view. But, but let's pursue now the focus. And let's think about these crowns. So he's wearing many crowns. And so we, we want to say, well, how does the Bible help us to understand crowns? Well, from a natural point of view, the minute we think of crowns, we think of English say queens, the rest of us say kings. Okay, we think of, of power. We think of those who rule. We think of kings. Well, is that what the scripture says? We go back to the scriptures. In fact, the first occurrence of a crown is linked to a king. First time we find, uh, it's not in Genesis, by the way, or the, that I found. Please, if I'm wrong, I'd love to be able to correct that, in fact. But 2 Samuel chapter 1 and verse 10 is the first occurrence of a crown, and it was the first king's crown. Saul, very interesting, just a little side note. We get introduced to Saul's crown once he's dead. I think there's a wonderful message there. The people's choice for power. And we see his crown first when he's a dead man. And of course, we, we have many other references to crowns. But the one echo that should be coming up is the crown of thorns. That they gave to the one that God had chosen to be king. So the one that they chose to be king, we find him with a crown when he's dead. The one that they didn't want as king, we find him with a crown of thorns when they're trying to kill him. What an amazing contrast between power and kings. So immediately we're starting to understand more about he's coming with many crowns. And this is something to do with, with power and God and man's claims to power. And so why would he have to wear uh, many crowns? Well, a bit later on, 
uh, the verses that I didn't ask you to read and we would come to in the next day of meditation, he, in the very same vision, is called the King of Kings. In other words, the Word of God wants you to know that there are many pretenders to power out there, many people who want to hold the crown. This man is not coming just to be another king. He's coming to vanquish all of them. All of these kings will be under his kingship. Every crown is going to be his crown. He has many crowns because he is the king of everything and everyone. All crowns are brought before him. So suddenly this idea of many crowns, as unusual as it may seem in a vision from the natural perspective, in the spiritual perspective, makes all sense. And so we find in the book of Revelation there are lots of other crowns. The beasts have crowns. The dragon has crowns. Everybody's trying to show that they are the true power. But this is the only one with many crowns. This is the king of kings. So that brings me to worship. It brings me to reflect on what does that mean for me and my Lord? And it may bring me to to prayer. And all of this matters because it puts his greatness into perspective. I'm brought to worship him with humility. We spoke about that today. In the knowledge of his omnipotence. Though we may live in a world where it seems that certain crowns wield so much power and result in untold injustice and misery, we are humbled by his all-consuming power. He will prevail as the only power. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, both now and forever. And I, I put that as a prayer because to me, meditation must bring us to some some added consciousness of our relationship with the Lord Jesus and his Father. So that's the worship. And then before we leave our meditation, what can I take with me for the day? How can I apply this into my own life? And isn't it true that he is the king of kings? He is the one who wants to be king of every part of my life. And we do have different parts of our lives. We have the part that we're enjoying right now. It's our uh, ecclesial or church life. And sometimes it's easy for him to have that crown. And we are celebrating the fact that he's the king here right now. But in a few days' time, we go back to work. And there's some very, very strong people there. People like our bosses. People like the owners of the business who could fire us tomorrow. And they exert power. And sometimes we don't want to tell them where we've been the last week because we're afraid that maybe that would affect our relationship with them. And so perhaps he isn't the king there. Or maybe for you, he is the king there, but you have some entertainment that you love to do with friends. Maybe playing golf, maybe going to watch football, or whatever it might be. And in that place, he doesn't have the crown. Or maybe it's uh, at your home, in your family environment, where you are the boss or would like to be the power. And he doesn't honestly rule there. So the point is, he has many crowns because he wants to be the king of every part of your life. Is there a place in your life where he doesn't hold the crown? So as I walk out into the day, I'm thinking, Lord, you need to be my king of kings. In every place that I'm found, I need to be able to say, you are king here. And of course, if you like bonus uh, gems, I like to always share bonus gems. There's this idea that comes from the, uh, uh, the New Testament, where in fact, Paul talks about the crowns we're going to receive. And often we think, well, we're going to get this one crown. Well, I've got good news for you. You're not just getting one crown. In, in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says you're going to get an incorruptible crown. I'd like one of those. But he says in 1 Thessalonians, there's a crown of rejoicing that's also on offer. And then Peter says there's a crown of glory, 1 Peter 5 verse 4. And then we've read about from Jesus that he wants to give us a crown of life. 
And again, Paul says there's a crown of righteousness. So I count at least five crowns that I'm expecting. So no wonder he's coming with many crowns. So all of these ideas, just unlocking by listening for the echoes, by, by remembering what we've read in the rest of Scripture. And I hope through that, illuminating the spiritual truth that is contained in a passage that we may have just viewed as predictive, as a fulfillment when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, but that has value for us today. So let's do some a different approach. We're going to do some drawing, but we're not going to... Well, you have got a pencil and a piece of paper. Excellent. Good, good Bible student. So at least you've got one that can participate in this. So, because I forgot to give you homework. Bull's very good. He gives you homework. And uh, my homework would have been simple. Just bring a pen and paper. So we have over here, Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 to 4. A bit of a long uh, passage. I do accept it's on the limit of even my ability to take off the page. So here we have a picture, very well-known picture, the throne room scene, it's often called. That beautiful scene of glory that is pictured for us in, in Revelation 4. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read it two, two times, twice, twice. Read it twice. And then if you have got a pen and paper, you're going to have to be fast. We'll let you cheat here. You can even start drawing while I'm reading because we, we have got time constraints. And then I want you to quickly draw up what you see. Now, the idea of drawing... A, a passage or a vision is not to present it to anybody else. So if you're like me and you have no artistic skill, this is not for you to prove that you are a closet artist. You can go to the training courses if you want to get that to come out. This is purely for you in the process of drawing to start perhaps seeing details that you hadn't seen before. So you can start drawing while I read. Let's, let's read the passage. After these things, I looked and beheld a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the spirit and behold a throne set in heaven and one set on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance, like an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And on the thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. I'll go a little bit further. And the throne preceded lightning, thunder, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around about the throne, Four living creatures full of eyes in front and in the back. I'm going to read it one more time to give you a bit more time to draw because there is quite a bit of detail. I'm going to leave out the first part when he's called. He comes through a door. Come up here, see more. Verse 2. Immediately I was in the spirit and behold a throne set in heaven and one set on the throne. And he who sat there was like Jasper and the Sardia stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes. And they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the middle of the throne... And around the throne were four living creatures, full of eyes in front and in back. And if you're drawing very quickly, one was like a lion, the second was like a calf, the third had the face of a man, and the fourth was a flying eagle. Now that's quite a long passage, 
And the first thing that I've learned is I'm not necessarily interested in my drawing being perfect and capturing every detail that's in that passage. What I am interested in is what remains in my mind that I heard that I'd like to draw as I'm drawing. I'm also interested that when I'm drawing, there's certain detail that I'm not sure of. Was that in the passage? Is that detail there? Because I'm trying to draw it and I don't quite know how to draw it. And that may make me go back and have a look. And in those details are perhaps the ways in which we see something missing or something that stands out for us. So some of you may have been able to draw something, so I'm not going to ask you to, to present your drawing to us, although I'm sure some of you have got some beautiful pictures. I'm going to show you some pictures, and, and, you, and you'll see how different they may be from what you've done. So here's a picture that I got off the internet of that vision. Does that look similar to any of the ones that anybody who did draw look? Not at all. All right. Now, interestingly enough, it doesn't make yours wrong or theirs right, and they may have some details that may not be quite correct with the way it's written. But the point is, whoever drew that, I can see, and I don't even know who it is, that there's a certain word that caught their attention. What word do you think that may have been? Around. They've captured their mind on the circular nature of the throne room, which, by the way, is very interesting if you haven't thought about this, because clearly the throne room has all of the echoes of the tabernacle. And what is one of the defining features of the tabernacle and temple? Oh my goodness, that's got my attention. The throne room looks round and circular, and yet the pattern of it on earth, the tabernacle of the temple, was fourfold square. Anybody has an answer for that? I don't. Come and tell me later. All right. Here's another picture. Very interesting details. All right. Focusing on lots of R's on the, uh, on the four creatures. And uh, there are your 24 elders coming through there. Emphasis on the door, perhaps. Lovely idea. You start drawing this picture and you, and you draw that door that John is pulled up through. And then there is my picture. I must confess. I, I did my picture and then I did say to my wife, please, I can't present that. So she took my picture and she made it look a little bit more beautiful. So I don't draw like that either. That's my wife. She's an incredible artist. So, so well, I think so. So there is the picture that I drew. And, and what I want to show you in that picture and in the drawing of my picture, the two things that became my focus, and there's so many things, and this is just the, the approach and the methodology, two things that really drew my attention, and maybe they are quite reflected, are that one, the seven lamps, before, before the throne. And, 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 and we'll talk a bit about why that drew my attention, but that was, wow, I hadn't really noticed that. These seven lamps, this lampstand, as it were, right in front of the throne. And then the other thing that, that drew my attention, I've already mentioned, is this idea of an open door. So, so now my meditation focused through the act of drawing, something's out there, and there's a spiritual truth that I want to go and understand a bit more. So let's take that a bit further then. Just through the door, understanding, zoom fix, what do we know? before we even get into any detail. You know, what's so amazing about this is for John to see this picture of glory, he just had to come through a door. There was a door in time and space that revealed to him what it would seem like the earth reconciled to its God in glory. To me, that's phenomenal. What an inspiration just from that. Through the door of time and space waits the day of glory. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, sometimes in my daily life, and I'm sure you're the same, it seems so much further away. Things are going wrong. I seem like I'm surrounded by immorality and sin, and it starts with me, actually. 
And that door and that vision of the kingdom seems so far away. And yet John in chapter 4 and Jesus talking to us says it's only a door away. Only as far as that door that you hear knocking. I'm standing at it. I'm knocking. I want to come in and share this glory with you. So that's, to me, a wonderful overall understanding. But let's talk about the focus very briefly. This is what caught my attention. Hebrews 9 says, for a tabernacle was prepared. This image, the echoes of the tabernacle all over uh, Revelation chapter 4 was prepared. The first part of which was the lampstand, the seven lamps, the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant, which we come to know from the Psalms, is the very throne of God. And so here in Hebrews, Paul is saying, as we know, that it, 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 it wasn't right in front. It was in front, but it was separated by a veil. And because of that separation, only once a year, only once a year, could one man go and stand before the throne? But in Revelation chapter 4, the holiest place, the place of the throne, is full of people. Or at least what seems to be representation of people. There are the 24 elders. They're the four beasts and they're praising and they're all in the holiest place. And the lampstand, which, which we know represents, certainly in Revelation, the churches, represents us, is not separated. It's right there, right in front. Of the throne. What an incredible spiritual truth. This is that this is true. That indeed we have boldness to enter the holiest blood, the blood of Jesus. That Jesus has turned the holiest of all from a lonely place to a family place. From a place where only one man could go to a place where all of us can go. That he's opened that door. That he's torn that veil. Wow. What a privilege to be able to enter into the holiest today. In communion with you my Lord. Thank you for opening such an incredible door. So as I go out into the day. And I look at how I can apply this into my everyday living. Well it becomes obvious. That not only do I have to be aware. That as I face challenges in my life. As I face these other crowns and the dim the vision of the kingdom becomes dim that day of glory that I know that it's just a door away. That if I commune with him, he'll bring me to that place of glory. I can experience that, that feeling that is described in Revelation chapter 4. And more importantly is that he's done the work. He's broken the veil. And how often in our spiritual lives, either we are putting things to separate ourselves from God or other people are. Other people are putting conditions by which you might break bread and be in communion. Other people are putting conditions how you should communicate with God and how you should have a relationship with Him. And all He was doing was to try and take away those barriers, those veils, those curtains that either we're putting in place or others are putting in place. And to me, that is inspiring to know that there is no separation anymore. There is no dividing wall. There is no veil. That seven lamp, that lampstand stands right before the throne because of what He has achieved. So I hope in some small way we've been able to see how we can take these passages, some might say completely out of context, and meditate on them and see how they can bring us to worship and change and, and, and reveal to us spiritual truths that can impact our daily living. I had intended to bring you a bite, but I would never do a bite any justice in the time that remains. 
So I will leave you so that we can get a bite next door.